The NPR shop features gift items for the public radio fans on your list. T-shirts, totes, hats, mugs, and more are available at shop.npr.org. Hey, y'all. It's the NPR Politics Podcast, here to round up some political news from the week. Got a few things to talk about, the latest on Russian hacking, Donald Trump's conflicts of interest, and his most recent cabinet picks. I'm Sam Sanders. Human. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House. I'm Danielle Kurtzleben, political reporter and superhuman. And I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor. And Sam, you've been stripped of your superpowers. I'm sorry. You're no longer uh, uh, well, yeah. political reporter. Don't miss me just yet. I'll never, you'll never actually be rid of me, you guys. You know that, right? Yeah. I as hope long as there's the food to be scrounged for, I will hover true. near your desk. The omnipresent Sam Sanders, as long as there's something to sniff out a gummy bear or That's right. <laughs> All right, so we have a big episode behind this one in your feed on Russian interference in the 2016 election. It features NPR's own national security expert, Mary Louise Kelly. If you want to get caught up on all this stuff, check it out. It was really informative. I enjoyed listening myself. Small update to that story today. NBC News reports that Vladimir Putin had a role in the hacking personally. It wasn't he didn't do the hacking. Right. He wasn't like sitting there putting phishing emails out to John Podesta <laughs> or anything. I have fifty million dollars that you must claim tomorrow. <laughs> Click here. <laughs> uh, but what they're reporting is that Russian hacking groups hacked into, you know, American political organizations like John Podesta's email and the DNC, for instance, and, and also a bunch of congressional committees as well. And That then once the hacking had been done, then Putin was involved in how it would be used, used, which was ultimately as a weapon against both Hillary Clinton and the American political system. Yeah, I mean, the point was to get Donald Trump elected. I mean, that was that was part of it. But it was also to undermine, like you say, the American political system. A line in that story of the NBC story really jumped out at me where they said that these intelligence officials, their use of the term high confidence implies that the intelligence is, quote, nearly incontrovertible, which is uh, pretty fascinating. I mean, we, you know, there's not a ton different here compared to what we learned on October 7th when the 17 intelligence agents put out a joint statement fingering the Russian government uh, and and saying it had to come from the highest levels. But what is different is saying that uh, what we learned in the past week or so is that uh, the intent, uh, you could surmise that the intent was to help Donald Trump because everything that got released was bad about Hillary Clinton and nothing was against Donald Trump. But they said that that was a specific purpose and uh, that it was tied specifically to Vladimir Putin. But most Russia watchers uh, don't find that surprising at all because nothing happens in Russia without at this level without uh, Putin's sign off. Right. And this hacking has also given Donald Trump several more reasons to hop onto Twitter and twist the truth a little bit. Uh, Just this morning, Thursday, he tweeted, quote, if Russia or some other entity was hacking, why did the White House wait so long to act? Why did they only complain after Hillary lost? Except for the part where they had this intelligence letter that was out October 7th. Right. And earlier this week, he said, why was no one talking about this before the election? Well, he was talking about it. Plenty of people, <laughs> before the election. including the him debates. and debate moderators were talking about it. But this this is, you know, him once again constructing the narrative that he wants to construct. And White House officials have reportedly said that they didn't want to act on this before the election because they didn't want to influence the election. My question, as the Russia saga continues, the fact that there is like multiple positions that folks this high up would take on Russia. I mean, 
a decade or two ago, we all knew where we stood with this country. Right. And some polling data came across my Twitter feed yesterday. It is a YouGov poll, uh, so does an online poll, but it is uh, showing that you compare Republicans and Democrats' favorable views of Russia. Uh-huh. Democrats have held pretty low. Republicans had held pretty low and recently have spiked. Really? Yes. That's something yep. else. Yeah. You know, really what you've seen is a little bit of a realignment that sort of Trump has promised. I mean, what you have is this strange nexus of hawks and Democrats on one yeah. side and Trump, basically, and his allies on the other. And so I, what do, do we, we have a, Do we have this audio? of Senator Lindsey Graham, who uh, he is a Republican senator. He's one of the Republican senators who are saying, hey, our president-elect may not acknowledge that this has happened, but this has happened and this is a very serious thing and it shouldn't be partisan. Uh, Graham was on CNN yesterday uh, with Wolf Blitzer. The president-elect still refuses (laughs) to accept that the Russians were involved. He says it could have been the Iranians. It could have been some guy in New Jersey. Well, uh, the Iranians are hacking into our systems. If it's a 400-pound guy, it was a 400-pound Russian guy. Uh, There's three reasons, I guess. Number one, he's been briefed and just can't put the puzzle together. He's very smart, so I take that off the table. That he hasn't paid much attention, hasn't received the briefings. Maybe that's true. Or he just doesn't want to know if he was briefed. There is no doubt in my mind that the Russians hacked into political systems throughout the United States trying to interfere with our election. And he had said that they even hacked into his campaign as well. Yeah, I mean, in the reference, we should back up a little bit and say that the 400-pound guy reference was not just Lindsey Graham taking that out of thin air. Donald Trump during the campaign had said uh, that, who knows, maybe it's Russia, maybe it's not, maybe it's China, maybe it's a 400-pound guy in New Jersey. Nobody knows. Right, it was an answer in a debate against Hillary Clinton. I'm not trying to play devil's advocate here. I'm not trying to pull any hijinks. But all week, as I've been reading more and more developments about Russian hacking, I've been saying to myself, well, doesn't the U.S. hack a lot of stuff to influence elections in lots of other countries anyway? Absolutely. Am I wrong to to ask this question? I mean, that was what the entire uh, Edward Snowden publishing, you know, various times that the United States had, you know, eavesdropped on Angela Merkel in Germany, for Hacked example. her phone, yeah. Or uh, Vilma Rousseff in uh, Brazil. Now, it's not Although clear that we were trying to influence we, those elections. Right, that's but, not. But certainly there have been widespread beliefs in countries around the world that America and especially the CIA has had an interest in nudging Elections. Oh yeah, and the U.S. has throughout I mean, our history. The US, and the US I mean, has throughout more, Latin America, there's. I was going to say the U.S. has taken way more direct impact, you know, uh, eff- you know, effects on uh, on places like Nicaragua, exactly. trying to go into Cuba during the Bay of Pigs and all that. Not split hairs here. I mean, how often have we done this in established, like first world, right. advanced? Doesn't make democracy. it any better though, does I, it? I I am not. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, I mean, the United States would argue that it does those things or has done those things, and we're not talking about the spying on allies, but right. when you're talking about the United States weighing in on elections in other countries, they're usually in countries that are a adversarial, b they have a preferred outcome that would be better to the more you know acceptable to the West, and more pro democracy yeah. for mm-hmm. most of the time. Russia, of course, though, would come at it from the other perspective and say, well, sure, they're doing the same thing. They want an administration <laughs> in the United States that is more pro Russian. They'd like to be able to you know, flex their muscles a bit and uh, bring back some of that nationalism uh, from Russia because we know Vladimir Putin. One of the ways that he is 
uh, risen in poll numbers is because he wants to make Russia great again. Yeah. And he controls the polls. Well, there's that. So (laughs) follow-up question. Are we in a new phase of hacks everywhere all the time of all the elections for the future? I think that we are in a new era of cyber attacks. And I think that it's something that James Clapper, the director of national intelligence, has warned about. I also think that because it's not visible, because it's not like you don't see the the, the grid go down or you don't see someone mm-hmm. steal money out of your account, you know, those kinds of attacks affect people emotionally in a way that cyber attacks don't quite do. Right, yeah. And ahead of the election, you know, when people talked, for example, Donald Trump talked about the election being, quote, unquote, rigged. I believe what many people had in their heads was was this idea of, oh, man, could voting machines be hacked? Is that the kind of hacking we are talking about here? Uh, I saw a headline this week. I believe it was on it was on Slate. And it said, you know, something to the effect of the votes weren't hacked. The voters were hacked. Mm. And I mean, that's <laughs> that's one way of thinking about it. I mean, because opposition research is nothing new. There was a story from The New York Times this week about Russians releasing opposition research into contested House races to the detriment of Democrats. And so that kind of opposition research, some of it fairly embarrassing and some of it just campaign strategy documents, is stuff that, that, you know, may come out in an election anyway. So, yeah, it's nothing groundbreaking. It's nothing explosive. And if you're and if you're a voter and you're not looking for it, you may not notice it. Uh, yeah, the difference, uh, though, is that like, we can't equate opposition research with what Russia did. No. Like, yeah. But what, what I'm saying is that to Joe Blow, sitting and watching campaign commercials, yeah. if I'm not seeing this news story out of The New York Times, I may never have known yeah. that Russia Where it came from. Right, yeah. And the only other point I would make is that whether or not you like Donald Trump, the, this being revealed undermines, in a way, the American political process and the presidency, and that's not good for the United States. So what happens next? There are calls for investigations, calls for sanctions, even even from Republicans. Who wins this fight, those voices or Trump, who wants to leave it all behind? Well, Congress can investigate as much as Congress wants, and as long as there is a will to investigate. And some of the chairman of key committees, uh, particularly in the Senate, want to investigate and they will remain chairman next year and they plan to investigate. As far as sanctions... That's a harder, that's that, a heavier lift. That's a heavier lift. What we don't know is the Obama administration has been saying things like, you know, we will act at the time and place of our choosing. I mean, for all we know, there's like some sort of computer bug that they've sent into Russia that's going to do something crazy sometime before January 20th. We may never know about it. So, in other news, back on November 30th, Donald Trump tweeted the following, quote, I will be holding a major news conference in New York City with my children on December 15th to discuss the fact that I will be leaving my great businesses in total in order to fully focus on running the country in order to, all caps, make America great again. He went on to point out that he is not forced to do this under the law, but he said, quote, I feel it is visually important as president to in no way have a conflict of interest with my various businesses. Well, you guys, today is December 15th. No press conference. What's the deal? Earlier this week, we heard that Donald Trump was no longer going to hold this press conference. and He was supposed to talk about his business conflicts of interest, his international uh, entanglements. Uh, And then he tweeted Monday night when uh, we first uh, heard uh, that he wasn't going to hold this press conference. And his team said that it's now delayed until January, that he will. They're promising that he will hold one. And he made some news in, in his tweets. It appeared that he already had thought about how he was going to do this and said, Eric and Donald Jr. are going to run the businesses. uh, And essentially, he was going to stay out of it. And Ivanka was going to be an advisor in the White House, too. But speaking of Eric and Donald Jr. and Ivanka, 
they were in a transition meeting with Trump this <laughs> mm-hmm. week with mm-hmm. a bunch of Silicon Valley tech leaders, right? right? Leaders from Google and Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Facebook. So what is their role going to be? A bit of both? Yeah, I mean, I think that Ivanka in particular is certainly a high-level, important advisor to this president. Her uh, husband, uh, Jared Kushner, who's the publisher of the New York Observer, uh, he you know is definitely innermost circle of Donald Trump. He was seen walking around the White House grounds when Trump came here to meet with President Obama with Dennis McDonough, who is President Obama's chief of staff. That's who you want to know and uh, to know when things are going to be happening. You guys put together a list that I loved today uh, of questions that NPR would ask Trump if he were to have a press conference. Mm-hmm. Tamara, I loved yours. Oh. What was yours? Thank you. Well, let me um, let me read it so I get it right. <laughs> um, it's just like a press conference where I write it down in advance and then I try to remember it. Here we go. Only two follow-ups now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so here's my question. Your former campaign manager, Corey Lewandowski, said recently, the problem with the media is that they took the things you said too literally. Do you want the American people to take what you say and tweet literally? How can the American people judge whether you are being truthful if your own aides say you shouldn't necessarily be taken literally? Would they answer that, you think? Well, if well, you're standing in front of the press yeah. and you're asked that question, mm-hmm. you know, you can certainly deflect. But there's a way that you need to be in a press conference as a president. And we note this in our story because there is an importance to having press conferences. Unlike other ways of getting messages out, press conferences hold public officials more accountable to the American people because they have to answer questions in an uncontrolled environment. You know, more wide-ranging, you have to answer follow-ups, you have to show whether or not you can stand on your feet and be able to have a facility with the issues uh, that people care about. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and with Trump, I mean, you could say this is particularly important because he has said explicitly that he uses Twitter to get around the media because he believes the media is unfair to him. And so, you know, this is a press conference, perhaps more than anything else, is a direct way for the media to ask those questions and for him to not be able to get around those things and to actually have to be in a position to answer those questions. Yeah. Also happened this week, uh, while Trump postponed that press conference about conflicts of interest, he did have time to meet with Kanye West at Trump Tower. Um, that's they, all I got to say about they that. T- they talked about life, man. Well, I, I, I'm sending good vibes for Kanye. He life. was in the hospital for a while going through some stuff. I just want him to not be used as a, as a pawn politically. The thing that about was remarkable to me about that day is that is the day that Donald Trump announced who his secretary of state would be. Mm-hmm. And yet the person who he appeared with in the lobby of Trump Tower was not his nominee for secretary of state. It was Kanye West. And that is something that past president-elects have done, right? Yeah, yeah. Past president-elects um, have had a lot of press conferences uh, during the transition period. For instance, George W. Bush had 11, even though he had a shortened transition. President Obama had 18. Uh, and many of those press conferences were where they introduced members of their cabinet and then would take questions from reporters afterwards. Donald Trump has not done any sort of events where he's introduced members of his yeah. cabinet. He's he's done these uh, press releases tweets and the occasional rally, though typically not with uh, members of his cabinet, well, I mean, cabinet. Do you guys think that that's by design, that that's a media strategy in the sense that... Of course. You know, that, yeah, I it's mean, all a strategy. Yes. Yeah. I mean, Rex Tillerson being the subject of a lot of controversy this week, once his name came up, 
Uh, so who better to appear with than a massive superstar that everybody always talks about to sort of divert attention? Yeah. Trump seems to be a master of diverting attention. Yeah, but right. I just think that this is a potential White House where they are going to try to change the rules. Oh, yeah. They, they've already signaled that. And I think that we should be prepared for anything, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Okay. Time for a break. We'll discuss Trump's latest cabinet picks, including Rex Tillerson and the Electoral College after this. This podcast is supported by Squarespace. Whether you own a small business or just need a professional portfolio, you should showcase your passion. Squarespace has the tools and website templates that you need to capture every detail of what makes your passion worth pursuing. Show your support for the show by using offer code POLITICS at checkout. Set your website apart. Finding new podcasts isn't hard, but finding the right new podcast can be. That's why Pop Culture Happy Hour teamed up with Lauren Ober from The Big Listen, the broadcast about podcasts, to tell you about some of the best episodes of 2016. We've got highlights from veteran shows, both big and small, and we have the scoop on some of the best newcomers of the year. Find our great big 2016 crossover episode at npr.org slash podcast and the NPR One app. All right, back to the show. All right, we're back. Let's do another cabinet lightning round. Spend a bit of time on these new picks. The big one, Exxon CEO Rex Tillerson for Secretary of State. I love that name, Rex Tillerson. It sounds... Like an oil tycoon, perhaps. Mm -hmm. Yes. Which, in fact, he is. So we discussed him a bit last episode, but give us more. Yeah, so he has worked at Exxon his entire life, sort of worked his way up. He's made a lot of really big deals, most notably because of everything that else that's happening right now uh, with Russia. Uh, But, you know, he has led a big organization. The State Department is a big organization. He's gone toe-to-toe with a bunch of world leaders. Um, But the State Department and diplomacy is different than business deals. But in some ways, this is like Donald Trump picking someone who he sees himself in. Next pick, uh, former Texas governor Rick Perry for energy secretary. This is a department that he famously could not remember when he promised to eliminate several departments in a 2012 primary debate. Uh, agencies of government, EPA needs to be rebuilt. But There's you no can't. Doubt about but you that. can't name the third one. The third agency of government, yeah. I would, I would do away with the education, uh, the uh, <laughs> commerce, I, I, commerce, and let's see. Oh I can't. The third one, I can't. Sorry. <laughs> Oops. Oh God. Oops. Oops. I can't. Yeah, the irony there that he was named to the uh, department that he forgot is, you know, not lost. All right. So there has certainly been some sniping between Rick Perry and Donald Trump in the past. Uh, Rick Perry called Trump a, quote, cancer on conservatism. Donald Trump insulted Rick Perry's intelligence during the campaign for the Republican nomination this year. Um, Now, Rick Perry is the former governor of Texas. And so in this sense, he kind of makes sense as an energy secretary because, you know, Texas being a major oil producing state, Rick Perry very often talked about creating jobs in Texas because of that oil when he was campaigning for president. Now, the Department of Energy, though, is not just about oil and gas. It's about nuclear weapons. And the current secretary, Ernest Moniz, is a nuclear physicist who helped negotiate the Iran nuclear deal. So that is one area of knowledge that Rick Perry will not be bringing to the table here. It's a big shift. And and I think that Rick Perry's nomination is sort of part of a theme for the the Trump cabinet, which I've described as an uncabinet or an anti-cabinet. Rick Perry wanted to eliminate the department that he is now going to lead. Uh, the EPA nominee 
is somebody who has described himself as a leading opponent of EPA policy, who's been fighting against the EPA. Betsy DeVos for education um, is somebody who has advocated uh, school choice and charter schools and vouchers, uh, which many in the broader education community say would undermine public schools, which is what the Department of Education is supposed to be about. So he is picking a, a large number of people for cabinet positions who have stated positions opposing or or going against the policies and missions of the agencies that they will lead. Question, though, once this uncabinet uh takes office, do they encounter these large agencies full of lifelong civil servants that they just can't get around? How much can they get done? I mean, I think that they can. One of the big things is enforcement. And if, you know, it comes from the top. If, if the top says, you know, we're going we're to slow walk these regulations, you know, it's much harder to actually roll back regulations than people might think. Uh, Brian Naylor, who works with us on The Washington Dust, did a great story on that that folks can look up. But it, they can slow walk regulations. They can put the agency that they're running in a completely different direction. I mean, they can the, do prosecutorial discretion, if you will, with, you know, how they implement various regulations. Regulations, or whether whether they go after people who are violating the Clean Water Act or whatever it is, um, they can decide uh, not to appeal cases that are currently in court, and they can certainly change the focus. Like a, a Department of Energy or EPA could change the emphasis and and do less climate change research. But they've already run into a couple of uh, issues, the Trump transition, with some of those career employees because at the Department of Energy, for example, there was this 74-question questionnaire that was going around wondering who uh, was part of the uh, negotiating the climate change pact that President Obama signed. Uh, and the Department of Energy said, we're not going to do it. We're not going to give it to you. We're and not then, naming names. Right. And then the Trump transition walked it back and distanced themselves from it. The other three letters... I I think people should uh, keep an eye on in this alphabet soup of Washington, D.C., is OGE. OGE is the Office of Government Ethics. And the thing that's been interesting about them is that they got into it a little bit with Trump because they were tweeting at him saying that it's a good idea to divest. We're so glad that you decided to divest. And Trump had certainly not done so. They uh, answered a questionnaire from Democratic uh, senator and uh, annotated it in 13 pages and said, look, while we may have limited scope when it comes to the president, we certainly do have a wide range of potential things we could do with cabinet officials, because not only is that the place where those financial disclosure forms are housed, which is where a lot of people like me who like to read those things go to find it, they said that we will comb through them for conflicts of interest, which is really fascinating considering the level of wealth uh, of some of these cabinet officials from Donald Trump. Got one more cabinet pick to talk about, uh, Montana Representative Ryan Zinke for Interior Secretary. All right. So Ryan Zinke, he is a first-term congressman. He hasn't been in Washington long, uh, which is sort of in keeping with the Donald Trump uh, drain the swamp anti-establishment cabinet. He is a former Navy SEAL, uh, and he is a supporter of coal, oil, gas exploration. So he is not exactly someone that environmental groups like the League of Conservation Voters, for example, are excited about. You know, he supports the Keystone XL pipeline, which is not built yet, of course. Uh, but, you know, what the Interior Secretary does is oversees federal land. And this is one interesting area where he has split with the party because the Republican platform this year actually 
uh, supported giving control of federal lands over to the states. Now, Ryan Zinke has been very opposed to this, and he has said, no, I want federal lands to be under federal control. And he has been very strong in trying to defend that. I mean, that still, of course, hasn't helped him win over these environmental advocates, of course. But it is one area where he might encounter some resistance among the right. I would just say one thing to environmentalists and people who might be upset with some of these cabinet picks who may be listening or not. Uh, elections have consequences. And this is one of them. Look at this cabinet. Yeah, I mean, this was a change election. Uh, Donald Trump ran saying, I am going to shake things up. I'm going to turn Washington upside down. Now, he was sort of hard to pin down on a lot of his policies. But this cabinet is a pretty strong indication of the direction he's planning to go. And this is sort of out of line with how other Republican administrations have come in. Typically, uh, you know, a, a an incoming president will pick people who have a, a deep level of experience in the agencies where they are going to lead or right. or at least in government. And Trump is purposely picking people who come, many of them from the private sector. This is a departure from not just Democratic policies, but also from the way Republicans have have set up their administrations in the past. Right. So um, the list that we ran through today, it's a lot of dudes continuing a general trend of Trump's picks so far for the cabinet being mostly guys. Right. Yeah. So there are 22 cabinet level people. So that's not just, you know, Department of XYZ. It also includes the chair of the, of the Council of Economic Advisors, the head of the Office of Management and Budget, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So out of these 22 cabinet level people, you have, uh, what, five, I believe we've counted here, who are not white men. You have Betsy DeVos, education. You have Elaine Chow. Transportation. Ben Carson, HUD. Linda McMahon, SBA administrator. Nikki Haley. And Nikki Haley, right. For, uh, ambassador to UN. Yes. Shall we discuss the Electoral College? Next week, they will officially do their thing. On Monday, December 19th, they'll vote to make Donald Trump the 45th president. We have seen more calls for electors to not vote. We've seen Democratic electors call for intelligence briefings ahead of that vote. But to be clear, there seems to be no version of events where the electors do not choose Trump to be president on Monday. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's it's pretty rare for electors to vote against the way that the people in their state voted uh, the last time that this happened was in 2004 at the general th- and it was an anonymous elector in Minnesota. And it is one possibility is that the person accidentally uh, <laughs> uh, voted. Uh, for, Nobody's owned up to it. So it was a Minnesota elector who accidentally voted for Edwards as opposed to John Kerry. And so we know that the electors are party loyalists. You know, there is this idea, though, that the Electoral College is supposed to be a firewall against a president that would be bad for the country. They are supposed to be removed from the direct will of the people. Now they've become a sort of rubber stamp. Is that what the founders intended? Uh, No, this wasn't what they intended. Uh, It was intended to be something that, like you said, stopped uh, somebody or something that was unqualified. And you have uh, people who uh, are supposed to be elders or people who are the best of society who step forward. That is not what it has turned into. It's become something that, like you said, is 
mostly for activists or state party folks or former members of Congress or whatever it is, people who are involved. I mean, these are activists. Now, you have had some people come out and say that they uh, either are going to vote their conscience and that they can't vote for Donald Trump or uh, and file a vote for John Kasich. We had somebody on Morning Edition say that they were going to step down from te- uh, someone from Texas who said that they couldn't vote for Trump, but fully believe that Trump would win. I also think that you could have a situation in some respects where you, I mean, there's possibility that somebody could decide they don't want to vote for Hillary Clinton either. I mean, there are, mm-hmm. there are these, there have been faithless electors in the past, never enough to throw an election or change the outcome. Right. I want to give a couple key dates for you guys. So Monday is when they're supposed to vote, but we're not going to know actually the tally until January 6th when Congress reconvenes and they add them up and they technically do the voting. Uh, you'll probably hear some leaks between now and then. You're probably right. not yeah. a lot of and, suspense. Right. And no. to, yeah. to be clear, I mean, should we have anybody out there who is, you know, hoping against hope that enough electors will defect and Donald Trump will not get 270 votes? Well, then it goes to the House of Representatives and the House will vote between the three highest electoral vote getting candidates. So let's say it's Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump and let's throw John Kasich out there. The House is majority Republican. Each state delegation gets a vote and the majority of state delegations are, you know, majority Republican. So it is really hard to see how a Republican uh, Donald Trump does not win this. All right. Before we go to the break... There was some really interesting political news coming out of North Carolina. They've had a really interesting year or two. Um, There's some serious drama happening down there. Um, We know that their governor, Pat McCrory, lost re-election. He finally conceded after weeks. Uh, He was challenging lots of the votes. His Democratic challenger beat him by a little over 10,000 votes. But before Pat McCrory is out of there, he and a GOP-led state house voted to push through a lot of bills that would cut the incoming Democratic governor's power. They want to diminish the governor's ability to make appointments. They want to cut the governor's ability to appoint members to UNC School Board of Trustees and Board of Education. They want to equally divide the election boards between two major parties, which would end control from the governor's party. They want to cut the number of employees who serve at the governor's pleasure. This is a big deal, uh, and lots of folks are crying foul. This is like, elections have consequences, but so do special sessions of the legislature. (laughs) Yes. And the man who won the election, uh, Roy Cooper, uh, who's a Democrat uh, and is the North Carolina governor-elect, he threatened to sue the legislature today. Uh, He said that if I believe these measures are unconstitutional, they will see me in court and they don't have a good track record there. So promising a fight in a state that has seen quite a bit of fighting, uh, especially surrounding the so-called bathroom bill. Yeah. You know, so I find a a state like North Carolina so fascinating. It is equal parts this kind of new South and an old South. And you've got folks that have lived there for generations and lots of Yankees coming down from up north. And it is making this political stew that is complicated and contentious. Right. Well, and you've got to wonder when a legislature puts through or tries to put through something really uh, some really contentious, really big changes like this, the Republican Party could be shooting itself in the foot for the future. Because what if they get the governorship later, they're going to enter into a very diminished power of the governor. Right. So these committees are scheduled to discuss the bills on Thursday today, and votes are expected uh, either today or Friday. So watch that. There's going to be something. All right. Time for one more break. We'll be back with Can't Let It Go. 
Support for this podcast and the following message come from the Amazon original series, The Man in the High Castle, which imagines a world where the Allies lost World War II and America is ruled by Nazi Germany and imperialist Japan. But revelations and secret prophetic films prove our future belongs to those who change it. Based on the award-winning book by Philip K. Dick, executive produced by Ridley Scott, and winner of two Emmy Awards, stream the new season now on Amazon Prime Video. Okay, we got time for one quick question from a listener. Uh, be sure to send us your questions or voice recordings to nprpolitics at npr.org. All right, this one comes from Steph. She writes, quote, Hello, NPR Politics people. I keep seeing this story pop up on Facebook that one big reason Trump got elected was that even though the economy is improving, people don't feel that they are doing as well as their parents were at their age. And several studies are always cited to say that it's true. We're not making as much as our parents. My question is, is this true for everyone? I'm the 30-year-old daughter of a single mother. Not only am I financially better off than my mother was, I'm making more than my husband. Does this hold for my gender and his perception of success tied to how men are doing compared to their fathers? Thanks for helping me stay sane through the chaos of 2016. Cheers, Steph. So it seems Steph is referring to the Index of the American Dream study. This was led by researchers at Stanford and Harvard. Danielle, you have more deets on this, huh? Right, yeah, yeah. So this is a study uh, led by several economists, one named Raj Chetty, whose name is pretty big in the economic mobility inequality field. Now, this study, uh, David Leonhardt did a great write-up on this in the New York Times on December 8th. And the study has some pretty alarming numbers, really. So what it did was examine birth cohorts and see how much people in those cohorts earned above their parents. So if you were born in 1940, you had a 92% chance of earning more than your parents did. If you were born in 1950, slightly smaller, 79%. So it, go, it drops pretty precipitously after that. If you were born in 1980, which is just before I was born, so, you know, the oldest millennials, you have a 50% chance of earning more than your parents. That is, you know, if you are a believer in the American dream and pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, that is alarming, right? So she asks, you know, is this true for everyone? Clearly it's not. It's true for 50% of people, but that leaves 50% of people who are not earning more than their parents. So what does this say about gender, though? Her question was about gender. Right, yeah. So interestingly enough, this, is, this comes from another uh, study from the same-ish group of economists, and specifically women at age 30, Steph's age, um, who were the daughters of single parents, especially of single parents who are closer to the lower end of, this, of the income spectrum, those daughters are more likely to work to be employed mm -hmm. than the sons of those parents. Now, there are all sorts of reasons why, and I'm not going to speculate on this, um, but they're more likely to work at age 30 than the, the boys are at age 30. Now, in terms of income, as you might guess, the boys at age 30 are pretty much always earning more than the girls are at age 30. So that just tends to hold true. Mm -hmm. um, but what I think is the most interesting question here, and I, I really encourage you guys to jump in here because I could just go on a tear forever about this. But the question of is perception of success tied to how men are doing compared to their fathers? Now, I imagine on a person-by-person -person basis, no, because I'm not a man. That is not how I consider my success. Tam, I imagine the same thing is true of you. But this election was very much... Uh, an election in which Donald Trump, for example, hammered on manufacturing jobs and jobs that are, quote unquote, considered manly. And now or they're coal mining jobs exactly. or steel mill jobs and where, where those jobs have suffered. And yes. didn't Trump do really, really well in parts of the Midwest 
where those jobs had decreased the most. Yes, absolutely. Now, there is a great article, I'm just throwing out a bibliography here, I realize, by former Labor Department economist Betsy Stevenson, who does great work. It's in Bloomberg, but she talks about how men should should be willing to take less manly jobs because the jobs that are growing right now are not manufacturing. They are not coal mining. They are healthcare. They are jobs that are about communication and caring for people. And they are very many of them are jobs that are women dominated. And so this whole idea that we need to bring manufacturing back to bring back the economy, well, manufacturing output is actually pretty okay. Manufacturing employment is down. Where employment is going up are jobs where many women are employed. And so this whole idea of American success being on these male goods-producing jobs is a pretty outdated notion of success. But it is a narrative that Donald Trump really strung pretty convincingly. And if it's your husband or your brother or your father, Mm -hmm. then, then the success of those men definitely affects your perception of the economy and and of the American dream. But it's not so simple as saying that these men should take less manly jobs and go into the healthcare industry because there's a significant level of worker retraining Mm -hmm. that needs to go on. And I think that that's a giant gap and a gaping hole for especially men in their mid-50s who got laid off during the 08 uh, collapse and sure. trying to get retrained to, uh, you know, if you were a lumberjack to go become uh, somebody who can code, you know, that's not exactly in the upper Northwest. Sure, that's a job that's available, but it's not a really easy thing to do. Yeah, sure, I, absolutely. I interviewed a woman who was an auto worker. And then in the Great Recession, she lost her auto job like so many people did. And she was like, OK, well, I'm a 55 year old woman. I'm going to go back to school and I'm going to get into nursing. And so she did the nursing training and she finally got a job. But it's a really hard job. And she's like now a 60-year-old woman doing like the lowest, most entry-level nursing job. Mm -hmm. She doesn't make anywhere near what she made in the auto industry. It's a very physical job. Yeah. Well, and this is and this is one more unfortunate twist of this whole thing is this idea of job polarization. There's some controversy about it, but the idea that these middle skilled jobs, which are ha, were also you know sort of middle paying, like manufacturing, have you know not grown very fast. But these lower level, lower skilled jobs, often manual jobs like cleaning or caring for people, being a home health aide, they are growing. But it is true, right, that they do not often pay quite as well as those vanishing middle skill jobs. All right, one more note from Rosalind about last week's episode when you guys discussed Ted Cruz and his love for queso. She writes, Dear NPR Politics Podcast crew, I always appreciate your informative and nuanced rundowns of the week's news, but I was, italics, shocked and appalled by the cavalier (laughs) attitude towards truth and justice displayed in this week's Can't Let It Go. False equivalence is an ongoing problem in media coverage, but imagine my surprise when you equated Texas queso with Arkansas cheese dip. I am confident that the only reason this travesty went uncommented upon was because my fellow San Antonian Sam Sanders wasn't there to speak truth to power. This is a standing invitation. If any of you fine folks come to Texas, we can find you a whole selection of queso (laughs) options that will blow you away. Apparently, our senators are falling down on the job. Sincerely, Rosalind. And And just to add to the false equivalence, (laughs) I heard from a lot of people from Arkansas. (laughs) And Ted Cruz noted... Queso ain't cheese dip. Yeah. And that's definitely true. Yeah. I feel a little bad, man. Like, I was the one that brought it up. You know, I I feel like I have let Rosalind down. I'm sorry, uh-huh. Rosalind. We're really bringing crockpots soon. Yes. We're going to no. settle this. Please. Can I state my unpopular Texan opinion? <gasps> As a Texan. You don't like avocados? I'm not. I love avocados. Oh, because Ted but Cruz I, doesn't like avocados. Know. You know that? Yeah. Here's what the, I'm not really into queso. <laughs> Shh. Rosalind, don't hate me. I think good salsa is better than good queso any day. Snaps. What? Snaps. All right. That's it for mail. 
Everyone out there, chips, queso, guac, whatever your sitch, you do U Y D Y. Thank you to all those who write us. We cannot respond individually, but we do love hearing from you, and it's super helpful to know what you're curious about. So thank you. All right, time for Can't Let It Go. This is how we end the show each week with one thing we cannot stop thinking about, politics or otherwise. Danielle, you got a doozy for us, huh? All right, yeah, I'm going to start with Teen Vogue, uh, which is not a periodical title that a lot of us think of when we think of, you know, hard-hitting political news, but... But they you know, have some good stuff in there. They, they do, and they have, you know, throughout this election, and not always just election-related. Uh, this week, the reason that this came to the fore is that there was a pretty scorching op-ed in there by Lauren Duca. It was about how, as she put it, Donald Trump is gaslighting the nation. This is a reference uh, to a ver- a pretty old movie in which a man makes his wife believe she is losing her mind but by sort of fiddling with things around the house, including the level of the lights, hence gaslighting, and sort of telling her, oh, you misremembered that. No, you didn't really uh, know what was going on. So her argument is that the way that Donald Trump manipulates the truth, uh, the way that he stretches the facts or altogether ignores them as we have known he ha- he is wont to do and has been throughout the campaign is his way of gaslighting America and making us argue about very basic facts. Now, to be clear, this is an op-ed. It is very anti-Trump. Uh, but, you know, it just sort of made a lot of people take notice that, you know, this is a teen magazine. I think it's very easy for people to write off teen magazines and teen girls as, you know, frivol- frivolous publications for frivolous creatures about glitter nail polish. Teen Vogue does have stuff on glitter nail polish. And I'm sure it's very useful. As a woman who loves nail polish myself. I but, hope there's lip gloss in there, too. Well, naturally, yes. But um, but it, it's really great to see a magazine treat teenage girls as serious whole creatures who may care about fashion, but may also, you know, care about the direction of the country they're inheriting. There you go. Domenico, what you got? I really can't let go of this Trump Grill review. <laughs> oh, I haven't read <laughs> it yet. That is in Vanity Fair that I wouldn't have known about. Had Donald Trump not tweeted indirectly about it. This what morning. did he tweet? Okay, so this is not like a George Foreman grill. This is oh no 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 it's exactly it's not a grill you buy at the hardware store. It's okay. actually the restaurant in well, the lobby. Also, of sidebar: Trump Tower. no one can hate on George Foreman grills. That got me through college. Me too. I love them. <laughs> I do. Just try to draw the yes. distinction, yes. what we're talking yes. about here. Isn't the Trump Grill where the taco bowl came from? So, yes, the Trump yeah. Grill. And he said this is the, the best taco bowls around. You know, he always talks about how great his restaurants are, of course. Um, and this is in the lobby of Trump Tower on Fifth Avenue. Uh, there's lots of mirrors. There's the pink marble everywhere. And Tina Nguyen, who uh, wrote about this, her second paragraph. Okay, I'll just read a couple of excerpts here, okay? She says... The restaurant features a stingy number of French-ish paintings that look as though they were bought from home goods. Wall-sized... Whoa, whoa, whoa. Don't hate on home goods. You know. Wall-sized mirrors serve to make the place look bigger than it actually is. The bathrooms transport diners to the experience of desperately searching for toilet paper at a Venezuelan grocery store. (gasps) My God. Rough. Uh, and then finally, what about the food? What about finally, Taco Bowl? To, let's get to some of the food. Renowned butcher Pat Lafrida once dared me to eat an eyeball that he himself popped out of the skull of a roasted pig. That eyeball tasted better than the Trump Grill's gold label burger, a Pat Lafrida branded short rib burger blend molded into a sad little meat thing sitting in the center of a massive, rapidly staling brioche bun, hiding its shame under a slice of melted orange cheese. It came with overcooked woody batons called fries. How can someone mess up fries? And and ketchup masquerading as Heinz. 
If the cheeseburger is a quintessential part of America's identity, Trump's pledge to make America great again suddenly appeared not very promising. This is just the elite media establishment hating on real America Donald Trump. It tries very, very hard uh, to, I guess, stick a finger in the eye. (laughs) Have you eaten? So now you have to eat there. I haven't eaten there. I don't know. You have to go eat there. We should go eat there. Some journalists, I have been watching Twitter lately, a couple journalists, uh, Olivia Nuzzi being one, uh, she went to Trump uh, Grill, the bar at Trump Grill, and said a guy ordered a martini, and it came out like this. And she had a picture of like a wine glass with a martini and an olive like a wine glass? Yeah, you cannot put a martini in a wine glass. I don't know. Tamara, you have something musical for us? I do. Uh, so there's this thing called carpool karaoke, which, I mean, everyone on earth knows about. Yeah. And Ari Shapiro of ATC interviewed uh, James Corden. In one of back. the most charming interviews I've ever heard in yeah. my life. It was yeah. great. So speaking of charming, uh, Bruno Mars did carpool karaoke this week. One of my week. faves of 2016. Yeah, he, good. he just, um, I don't know, he just brings the joy and the enthusiasm and everything that carpool karaoke demands. And this song, 24 Karamat, is such an earworm. I just oh, want to play it like eight are. times. They're just... Yeah. I also like what I love about Bruno Mars. I mean, like you said, like he's so charming. There's this class of like 2016 celebrities who are just really nice people. The Rock had a great year. Yeah. He's a charming dude. Bruno Mars, super nice guy. It's I mean, nice to see nice guys do well. James Corden himself. Nice guy. Mm-hmm. I like that. Anyway, it's Yeah, good. there you go, America. Sam, what can't you let go of? Mine is also a musical, okay. um, but it's going to take people way back to this little old guy named Mozart. Da, da, this was the most cliche Mozart song Brent could pick. <laughs> da, 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 da. Leave that in, Brent. Da, 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 da. Anyway, <laughs> guess what um, accomplishment Mozart had this year? What's up? The best-selling album of 2016. Huh. Seems weird, so huh? Happy. How is that possible? Let me tell you why. What about uh, Lemonade? What about everything else, was right? Was this a new Mariah Carey Christmas album? It should have been. Underneath? That would have been fun. Oh. No, here's how it happened. Uh, uh, for a 225th anniversary, a box set called Mozart 225, the new complete edition, it sold over 1.25 million copies. Not which to be confused in this, with a box set. Oh, Dad, get you can out. just let yourself out. Get out of the studio. <laughs> get out. Any hooser, um, that 1.25 million figure seems really big until you understand this. Every box set, every copy has 200 discs in it. <laughs> so you only need to sell between six and 7,000 units to hit the 1.25 million copy number. Right. And that takes you over artists like Beyonce or Drake or Adele. So you're saying there's but like, it's a fine thing. Let's just give it to him. I will say it is Drake. nice to know that Mozart beat out Drake for the best-selling album of 2016. And when Drake loses, I win. <laughs> for those of you that want to pick up uh, this Mozart box set, it starts on Amazon at $339. Nice. Whoa. Have fun. All right, that's a wrap for this week. You can support this podcast by supporting your local public radio station. Go to npr.org slash stations to find yours. Donate. Tell them we sent you. That helps us do our thing here. All right. I'm Sam Sanders, Mozart admirer. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House. I'm Danielle Kurtzleben, political reporter. And I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor. And thank you for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. 